Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Linda Friedman is the writer and producer of Unaccompanied, Alone in America, a short film that shows what happens when unaccompanied children cross the U.S.-Mexico border and appear in immigration court without a lawyer. The film has been viewed online by more than 50 million people in over 170 countries, and it won a special award at the Indian Foreign Film Festival in New York in 2019. After working as a documentary filmmaker for the last decade, Linda has shifted gears and is now writing instead of producing stories that she hopes will have the same impact as unaccompanied. She's completed the pilot for a limited TV series on unaccompanied children and a second pilot for a TV series about the trauma response work that she does. She lives in Portland, Oregon with Mateo, her yellow Labrador retriever, and recently discovered a new way to stay in shape, non-contact boxing. I love you, Linda. It's the most incredible full body workout ever. Hey, Linda. Hey. I love you. So you're, of course you are. You're doing non-contact boxing. How'd you get into that? I had been looking for, I've been doing Pilates for years with my instructor and I wanted more in terms of cardio work. And a couple of things happened and all of a sudden a specialty gym opened up, not doing this, but that focuses on people who have Parkinson's disease. Because what they've discovered is that if you get Parkinson's patients exercising really intensely, really early, it slows down the disease. I happened in one day. And found a trainer who doesn't just do Parkinson's stuff, but she's a non-contact boxing trainer. And I said, I want to <laughs> I want to work with you. And so starting last March, and then, of course, there was a shutdown. So we were doing it virtually, which is really interesting to learn non-contact boxing virtually, but it can be done. And then we just got back in the gym about a month ago, because when I'm there with her, we are the only people in the gym and it's huge. And it's great. It is so, (laughs) it's when you say that people say, what is that? And you go, well, you know, the things that you learn, if you're going to fight, if you're going to box is really, it's really a chess match. Mm -hmm. And the strikes that you learn take considerable practice to learn. As you're learning them, what you realize very quickly is it takes a lot of effort, whether you're striking a bag, if you're in the gym, or mitts that your trainer is holding up for you to strike. And usually within about five minutes, I'm soaking wet and just having a ball because I, I've been an athlete my whole life, but I've never boxed. I'm finding that some of the things generalize from you know being a fencer, being a tennis player, playing squash and all those other things really was a great foundation, but boxing has its own. Anyway, it's fun. Well, I love it though. Yeah. And, and I also know that you also practice nonviolence. So it's kind of funny because it's, (laughs) it's boxing as a art form, as a sport, as a workout. Yeah, is, is violent, but non-combat, non-contact boxing is really the obvious because the only person you're working against is yourself. You know, how can I, how can I master these strikes How can I learn a combination and not screw it up? You know, if your instructor is calling, I want a jab, jab, cross, faint, 
uppercut, you're going, my brain goes, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> I, I have to get in my brain what what you're calling. And yes, she's going to hold up the mitts. But if, you know, if I get to the third command and I, I'm just standing there with my gloves up and then we just sort of start laughing because Linda's older brain takes a minute to go, okay, there were five, there were five strikes in there and I got screwed up somewhere between three and a half, four. So it's both mental and physical. I think my trainer thinks it's spiritual too. Oh yeah. Anyway, it's fun. I haven't laughed so much in my life. And I think part of it's just, how can I be so stupid? It's the really simple commands, throw a jab, follow it with a cross and a jab and a fate and an uppercut. There's nothing complicated about that. There has to be a really good mind-body connection. Yeah, well, that's what's coming up for me as I'm listening to you. It's so funny. I have a chiropractor. I adore him. I'm always teasing him because he will literally give me like three commands, lay down, yeah. put your head down and turn to the side. And I'm sometimes my I freeze. Like I'm like, wait, what? What? Say it again, right? And I really have to almost prepare myself. And I was just thinking as you were talking, I was like, God, that'd be a great way to start the day cognitively to like get back in my body, be able to follow directions, you know, and it just sounds such a, like a riot. It's it's exactly like that. And, and what it reminds me of is that, you know, when kids are little, I was doing early childhood education videos for 30 years. And so I spent a lot of time in classrooms. And one of the things you learn from the kids you're filming, as well as your own kids, because I had kids, is there's a huge difference between what's called a, a one order command or first order command where I say, go to the door. And you go, okay, I can do that. It's like your example. No, I went, go to the door and pick up the newspaper. That's two orders. But I say, no, I want you to go to the door, pick up the newspaper and bring it back to me. That's three. Mm -hmm. And you just described a three order command and how difficult it was for you. Well, think about children who are atypical learners for whom even a two order command is challenging. Sequencing, which is sequencing. We take for granted that everybody can do that. And it turns out they can't. Not everybody is as, is as facile at sequencing, which has great segue into storytelling because what is storytelling but being able to create a sequence of events that hang together in such a way that they communicate something and that's what we do all day long when we're talking to people we're telling stories almost everything we do at some level or other is either a very simple story or as you and I are talking right now it's a much more complicated one but what are we doing? We're making all kinds of references. We're drawing on our past experience with each other. We're doing all really complicated things that we just take for granted until you have a brain injury mm -hmm. or something else that interrupts you know, your ability to do something as simple as sequencing, which isn't simple at all when you think about it. I, I love learning about stuff like that. I love what you're talking about, too, as it relates to the sequencing kids who may have a challenge in that area. And what's really what I'm putting together right now is not only your work in the work that you did with children, but also the unaccompanied film, your heart, your soul, soul work with children. There's such a thread and a connection here with vulnerable children. Yeah. And that's why, you know, one of the things after I finished that, you and I talked about this was what I felt was the pressure to build on that very wonderful platform and figure out, you know, what's the rest of that story that needs to be told because unaccompanied was four minutes long and was limited to what happens inside an immigration courtroom to young children when they're not represented by an attorney. 
and and what you saw in the film is that the majority of those kids get deported. Mm -hmm. And that was what was so striking. And I think what had such a big impact on viewers. And so coming out of that, the challenge was, well, what in the world do I do to build on that? I went down some rabbit holes more than one and discovered that what I was trying to do, whatever it was, didn't work. And then I was in a class and was actually pitching an idea. It's a screenwriting class. And the person who was listening to the pitch at the end of it said, you know, something said, that's not a movie. It's a series. It's a limited TV series. That's what you should be doing. I said, not only do I not know how to write a screenplay for a movie, but I definitely don't know how to write a a TV series, starting with a pilot. From there is how, since you and I talked back in New York at the Indian Foreign Film Festival, mm-hmm. that's basically what I did for the next six months is I, I wrote the pilot for a limited TV series called Unaccompanied. It's about what happens when a five-year-old and a 13-year-old, two sisters, come across the border one August night, and they're picked up by Border Patrol agents. The five-year-old winds up in detention, but the 13-year-old disappears. She disappears. And the story continues because the attorney who represents the five-year-old, who, who winds up representing the five-year-old and searching for the 13-year-old, is a young Latina lawyer. It, kind of, it still gets me. I haven't read that script in a while. But it, once it was done, I, I had it reviewed by four professional readers, and, and it got very high marks. And so at some point, not yet, you know, we'll start putting it out there to see if we can get some interest. But I think the main thing about both Unaccompanied the Film and Unaccompanied the Limited TV series is that those are stories that nobody else is telling. And those are the stories I like to tell. And hopefully somebody else will too. But the important thing is that I think they're important. I think in some ways, unaccompanied, the little video was a a proof of concept. Uh, You and I and the rest of us who worked on getting it out there never thought that little film would take off like that. (laughs) No, we did not. I mean, uh, we did, but we didn't. And Linda, just for my listeners too, just so that this isn't something I typically talk about on air, but of course, I would love to share in this celebration of what happened. So for our listeners, Linda, I had a mutual friend come and some of you know that I kind of have a a side hustle. I'll call it a side hustle, but it's really not. I just don't put myself, I don't even have a website for it, but I've often for the last really 10 years have done digital marketing on a project by project basis for people who have projects that I fall in love with. And Linda came through a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours. And at the time, she did not have a website or a way to get the film out there. And this was two weeks before the... Was it two weeks, Linda? The, or was it one week? No, no, it was the Sunday. It was the Sunday before the Women's March. Oh, so in, I get to tell this part. In 72 hours, you not only created the website, the Facebook page, all the social media connections so that that Friday, which was June 30th, and the march was going to take place July 1st, we went live on that Friday, which was June 30th. Within two weeks, we had over 40 million viewers. It was like, and what you remember, what I remember was as soon as it hit, we started getting phone calls and requests from MSNBC and Al Jazeera and all these, all the big guns wanting an interview with me. I'd never done interviews in my life, but we did live interviews. And then as soon as that happened, we saw it going 
internationally. We could watch via one of our feeds as soon as, for example, in Al Jazeera, uh, we could see the movie being viewed in South America and the Far East. I mean, it's all over the place. And we're going, my God, is I had no idea. I, ha- I never had such an appreciation for what our current technological and social media modalities could do. And it was it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't know about anybody else. I think all of us were sitting there kind of with our mouth open and going, what's happening? <laughs> this is fun, but what's what's happening? It was an extraordinary moment. And it was the Families Belong Together March. It was the yes. week before that march came out. And I think you're right, Linda. I think it really, it captured everybody's hearts and imaginations and horror. Because I think, again, that the film, it's so hard for us to imagine the unimaginable until we see it. And I think that that's what you accomplished with that short film. I think that's a wonderful example. But I think unaccompanied that little short film was a perfect example of how powerful a visual story is because there's almost no no dialogue in it. I think there's four or five lines of dialogue. But to see the image of a child in a courtroom without an attorney and all these adults, you really didn't almost have to say anything. And all you had to do is watch those little kids being asked, do you have an attorney? And they can't even answer in English. So they have these huge headphones on through which they're hearing the question in in Spanish. It was such a lesson to me because, you know, it had taken me, I had started on that project all the way back in 2012 and we didn't bring the movie out until, was it 2018? Yeah, it was March or was it last year? No, it was was, uh, two years ago now. 2018. So, you know, to have kind of hung in there because I felt that that was such an important story and then to have it be such an incredible, make it such an impact was uh, was thrilling. It was and daunting because, like I said before, what it left me with was a feeling of great responsibility, mm-hmm. huge responsibility. Now what? And I'm I don't even think of myself as a documentary filmmaker. I make documentary films. You know, yeah, I do that. Finally, finishing up another one right now today. I'm sitting here working on the final touches of, of another film, a feature length documentary that started the same year in 2012. But unaccompanied is, I think, what you and I have shared before, and I think what everybody who worked on on getting that film out have agreed is that one was a gift from the universe. It, everything about it was, I hate the word channel, but it was somebody bigger than me and all of us wanted that out there because I, most of the time, didn't have a clue what I was doing. I just knew that story needed to be told. Well, and that's what I really, I'd love for you to tell our listeners, like what, just tell, if you don't mind, share the story of what had you get involved. Back in 2012, the newspaper here in Portland, Oregon is called The Oregonian. In, I think it was March of that year, a young immigration attorney named Anna Soselsky wrote an op-ed piece, this short article about her work, uh, working with unaccompanied kids. I read it and I was so struck by what she wrote. It was heartbreaking. And so I cut it out and I I put that little article on my desk and every day I'd look at it and feel guilt. And anyway, weeks after I cut it out, I finally just picked up the phone and called her and I said, could I take you for to lunch? You know, I'd really like to hear more about this. And, and I took her to lunch and I sat there and listened to what it was like to be representing unaccompanied kids at a time when nobody even had heard of the term. And I came away from the meeting 
beginning to feel really responsible. Well, somebody else must be working on this story. There's too much here. And so I spent, you know, weeks then uh, reading everything I could get, looking for it in newspapers and magazine articles and white papers and position papers. And I never could find that term. I could never find any reference to unaccompanied kids except in an occasional white paper. So now I'm really feeling guilty and thinking, wow, what do, what, what do I do? So I thought, well, the one thing I can do is at least start interviewing people on camera, like other attorneys and caseworkers and unaccompanied kids that had actually been granted, made it successfully been granted asylum and thought, well, I could edit these into something that would actually make sense, you know, a short video. And and no matter what I did, they just didn't work. I mean, there is nothing engaging about adults talking about what children are experiencing. Mm -mm. It really takes seeing them. And and I tried for, I don't know, a couple of years until I finally just shelved it. And I had been doing this on behalf of a nonprofit law firm called Immigration Counseling Service, ICS, here in Portland. And uh, I had gone to them with a suggestion. And so when I said, I'm shelving it, they just said, well, too bad. But then sometime later, more than a year, year and a half later, they got a new executive director and she emailed me and said, would you be willing to try again? And I said, yes, because I've been feeling guilty ever since I showed it because I know the story needs to be told and I couldn't figure it out, but I think I have figured it out now. And she said, basically, what do you need? And I said, I think we need to get into to a real courtroom. And she said, well, that's not possible because Department of Justice doesn't allow cameras or recording devices in courtrooms, especially not in immigration courtroom, she says, but there's a courtroom here in Portland that's no longer used, a a whole courthouse. It's called Gus Solomon Courthouse. And up on the sixth floor are these three gorgeous courtrooms. And this building was built like in the 1920s. So if you can remember what architecture was like back then, it was all marble and carved wood and just amazing. It's gorgeous. And sure enough, up on the sixth floor was this gigantic main courtroom. On each side of it were two smaller, but also very large courtroom. And it turned out that because Immigration Counseling Service was a nonprofit, we could, quote, rent, but not have to pay for like half a day in the courtroom. And that's when the challenges became because, well, we needed a judge. And this is what I mean about a gift, because I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, Bill, will you be a judge? And he says, well, I have a better answer. I have a friend, uh, Judge Schnaufer, who just retired. And I'll bet you if you ask, he would be your judge, but he's not an immigration judge. I said, that's fine. So that was first thing. And the second thing was, well, we needed somebody to be the counsel for the United States government. Uh, In other words, we need a lawyer sitting there, as they do, always representing the government. Even though the kids don't have a lawyer, the government is always represented by a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, you know, I think a friend of mine is a law professor from the University of Arizona, and he's going to be in town. Maybe if you ask him, he'd come be counsel for the United States. I said, okay. And he said, yes. And then I said, well, we need a an interpreter because the kids don't speak English. And so when they appear in court, usually 
the interpreter will put headphones on them so they can listen to the judge simultaneously uh, being interpreted by the interpreter in in Spanish. And then the biggest <laughs> biggest challenge is, what do we do for kids? I mean, we can't use actors. Number one, I don't have any money. And number two, I don't know how you would even get a kid to do that. And then lo and behold, the staff and friends of, of Immigration Counseling Service had kids. And somebody agreed to wrangle kids that day. Uh, we had seven. My friend and I, Brian, was the other camera. So my camera, his camera, somebody else was there for half a day. My camera lost audio within the first hour. It's like, oh my God, what do we do now? We kept going. And at the end of it, you know, we were exhausted at the end of four hours, but it's clear. We could tell even then, I think we got some some really special footage. And I went back to home and started putting it together. And I was just, it gives me chills even now, because as soon as you saw the images of those kids, the faces, we shot most of it very close up. Mm. So you all feel like you're sitting right next to this kid and these kids are just being kids. But anybody walking into that courtroom would go, oh my God, I don't want to be here and I don't know what to do and I'm scared. And that's exactly what you saw, which is exactly what real kids who appear in courtrooms with nobody beside them, nobody, there's nobody there. And what the world, I think, got to see again with that film was what it must be like, not only for the children, but to imagine, like for me, to sit there and watch someone's child. Suddenly that child became not somebody's child, but all of our children. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly what happened. And that's what people you know, have said to me. I can't, number one, they were horrified. Is this really happening? Which is you know, exactly what I, I, I had hoped. Is this really happening? Yes, it's really happening. How many kids is it happening to? Well, let's just take last year. And even with Trump, even last year, 72,000 unaccompanied kids came across the border. <laughs> Under Trump, you know, we know that even worse things have happened because the kids have been separated from their parents. It was like, I think the horror of the fact that our government, our government, this is a democracy we, we claim to care about and all those good things we think and believe about our country, but that we would put children through this. And then, as it says at the end of, of the movie, like 90% of these kids who are not represented by kids get deported. And we know what happens when kids get deported back to hell holes, which were the reason that they tried to make it in the United States. They watched their families being killed. They watched their sisters or themselves being raped. Everything you can imagine horribly happening to them. And now they're going to be sent back there. (laughs) And you go, what? This can't be happening. But it's still happening. It's still happening. The only difference is, you know, nobody's winding up in court because courts are closed. And so kids that do make it across are basically, um, they're in prison. You know, everybody's seen the pictures of, of kids in cages and everything. That hasn't ended. That hasn't ended. Mm-mm. And there are still kids that never got returned to their parents because the government didn't, this administration didn't bother to create the records that would make it possible to to reunite parents and kids. So, you know, to me, it's that's what's happening in this country. But I think for me, what it did, it really doubled the horror because I think it made me and a lot of other people think about what's happening to children in a lot of under, other countries many, many countries around the world where there isn't even a possibility of crossing a border to potential safety. Mm-mm. I don't even know the number of kids that are refugees right now, but it's in the millions. And so I think what that film did was because it was so visually stunning 
I think it just made everybody stop and go, this can't be happening. And then you go, yeah, it's happening. What will you do about it? And, you know, we had hoped that that it would be a major fundraising source. And we did make some money. But what it did do, at least for the time being, make a lot of people aware of the fact that, yeah, we got some problems out there and they involve the most vulnerable people in our society. And the fact that it came out the day, the night before the Mother's March was, again, a part of the gift because... I mean, you kind of had a big audience that were primed who care about kids even before, you know, that weekend. It wasn't a new event that concerned for what's happening to children. And that's the story of Unaccompanied. It's it's still alive and kicking out there. And the fact that, you know, there's now a, a limited TV series pilot, just a pilot. Turns out I had to learn a lot about it. I thought, oh, I've got to write the whole series. No, you you write a pilot that's supposed to be good enough for a director or a producer to go, oh my God, it really is It really is a show. It really is a series. And at least the reviews of it say it is. But then you find out, oh, really strong recommendation. Don't go out with just one series. Make sure you had at least two or three in your hip pocket because when you pitch it to a producer or a director or an agent, the next question out of their mouth, if they like it, is what else have you done? And if you haven't done anything else, that can be the end of the conversation. So that's why, you know, I just finished the second one, which you're not asking me about. I'm making it easy for you today, Monica. I know. I know. I'm loving it. So Linda, what's the second one about? So the, se- the pilot for the second TV series is called Tip, right now the working title. And it's about I think I told you I've, for the past six years, been a volunteer with an organization called the Trauma Intervention Program, TIP. And TIP is uh, not a group of volunteers, but a group of volunteers, highly trained, that whenever there is an unattended death in about 250 cities, police or fire, 911, will call for us to come to not deal with the victims, they're dead, but to be there for the family, uh, neighbors, bystanders to provide immediate practical and emotional support. And you go, what? So what are the kinds of calls? We've got homicides and suicides and baby deaths and drownings and people lost and dying up in the mountains around here, automobile accidents, you know, whatever you can think of. And I've only been a volunteer on this crisis response team for about six years. But in the course of that, I've, I've been on all those calls, including some I didn't mention. And, and one of the things that you come away from, if, if you're that kind of volunteer is the fact is the feeling that you did absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Because the main thing in your role as a crisis response person, you're not a counselor role is to somehow help people cope with the worst day of their lives, one of the worst days of their lives. How do you be there for a mother whose son has just committed suicide or somebody whose daughter has just been murdered? And it turns out, you know, we have a, a shorthand for, you know, show up and shut up, which basically means the first thing you want to learn is how do you be present with someone? How do you be deeply present with someone? Because it's not a time in those first few hours for a lot of words. Mm -mm. It's time to be able to show up and be with somebody and not leave their side. Both generally are in shock when they've lost somebody. And it's been a wonderful lesson in learning to do that. That's a long way of saying, so So, what is the pilot about? What is the series about? The series is about what happens. What's the impact of not only going on these kinds of, of calls, you know, which is there's my dog. What's it like to go on these calls 
And more importantly, what's the impact on the volunteers who do this? Because this is, you know, death. Every time you go out, it's death. And what's the impact on other first responders? Because the professional first responders are not unaffected. Uh, When we go on a call and a baby has died, I guarantee you there's nobody who's taking it lightly or taking it for granted or business as usual. It's not. And it isn't on any of the other others either. Although, you know, you have a lot of natural deaths, you know, you and your husband have had a wonderful dinner and a wonderful day. And he goes in to watch television while you do the dishes. And when you go in to be with him an hour later, he's dead. We call those, those are natural deaths. Nobody, there's no violence involved. But all of those events demand a lot of volunteers. And people say, why would any, the the question of non-volunteers is usually, why would anybody want to do that for volunteer work? I mean, and my answer is, I think there are some people in this world, and I'm grateful to be one of them, that for some odd reason, find that to be one of the most gratifying kinds of volunteering. Literally, you know, you walk away feeling like you've done nothing. The, The one practical thing you've done is make sure and help them select a funeral home. Because if you can imagine yourself, let's take an easy situation, the one I I gave you, you know, you you and your husband have done something and he winds up, you know, lying down and goes to sleep and doesn't wake up. The first question, and I did a little four minute video on this one too, uh, recreation. The first thing that happens is that person says, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with the body. I don't know what to do. And when somebody dies, and it's, it's a little bit different in every city or jurisdiction. But, but what happens if you call 911, two, two, first, two forms of first responders will show up. The police will show up and the EMTs, the firefighters will show up and the medical examiner will show up. Although he may be called, a, she may be called a coroner in some places. Well, they all leave. If there's not a TIF volunteer, they leave and it's up to the survivors to figure out what to do. TIF volunteers are there to help buffer the dealings with first responders who are very, very good at it, but it's very hard to have people in uniform in your house when your loved one is just dying. Oh my goodness, yes. And then they one by one leave. And unless it's a suicide, if it's a suicide, the medical examiner will take the body. But if it's not a suicide, you're left there. What do I do now? And the tip volunteer is there to help you, number one, catch your breath and reassure you that you don't have to do You only have to do one thing right now, one thing, and that's, and I'll help you do it. I'll help you figure out what funeral home you want to have come pick up, you know, your loved one's body. That's all we have to do. But that's really, really hard if you're in shock. And then what happens is once you make contact and we get this thing going is you can wait there for an hour or even two hours until transport gets there to pick up the body. That's a really hard time to be by yourself. And a lot of people are by themselves when somebody dies or you're there, but your family is going nuts. And so to volunteer is kind of like that one little, I don't know, entity in the midst of the chaos who's calm and who can say, this is what's going to happen. And you don't have to worry about that. And yes, this is really scary, but it's okay. And I'm no, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay. Ever since I became a tip six years ago, I thought, you know, there needs to be a series. And then I, I took a, when I was doing unaccompanied, I took a, a screenwriting class because I thought I needed some skills. And after the, one of the first classes I said to my instructor, I wrote in a note to him, I think after a, after doing an exercise, I said, somebody really needs to do a, a series, a TV series about the work I do with trauma. And, and he wrote back and said, yeah, you. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and, and I thought about that, but it took me, you know, a couple of years to, to get around to it. And I didn't really know how to do that. It's like when you have too much information, 
you know, where do you start? There's too much. It's like when we used to do early childhood stuff, we'd start, we used to just talk about a funnel. We have all this information and that's the top of the funnel. But to get it down to 30 minute segments in a seven segment series, uh, how do you do that? Because when you get to the bottom of the funnel, it's a very, very small hole, which means it's got to be 30 minutes or less. And, or in this case, limited TV series, 60 minutes or less. And you've got to sketch out in a pilot, not just what's going on in the pilot, but the entire arc of the story over the first season. Mm -hmm. And if you've never done this before, it makes you feel like the closest analogy is if you like to do jigsaw puzzles, you know, the good thing about jigsaw puzzles is they have edges and there's a picture on the box. So you have some clue about where you're going. If you're putting together a documentary film or you're putting together a TV pilot, you have all these pieces, even more than than what you have in a jigsaw puzzle, and there's no edges and there's no bottles to look at and there's no roadmap. And so you're creating a world and you're creating all these characters and then you're trying to figure out how do they interact in such a way that whoever's watching this is going to fall in love with them and want to see them. Well, I was going to say, I, I love the the reference to the jigsaw because I've been having some experience lately writing. I've been working on writing my book, my story. Yeah. I love, was it was this idea of like, the more I sat with it, the more overwhelmed I became. But it's, yep. it was right. But it was this idea of actually starting somewhere, telling one bit of the story and understanding yeah. that as I told each bit, I didn't have to tell it in order. I would figure out eventually where to put each part, but to kind of tell each bit in its completion and then figure out where each part needed to be in the arc of the story. Right. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, now I do. Yes. And it's challenge. It's daunting. It's very daunting. And, and the difference in doing doing a pilot is think about television or think about movies. When you, when you write a novel, you get to talk about what's going on in somebody's head and describe how they're feeling. And I'm like, well, when you're writing a pilot, you don't get to do any of that. Nothing you write can be, you have to, everything you write has to be visuals. And that was really hard in the unaccompanied pilot because I really wanted to be able to say how this little kid was feeling or how this lawyer was feeling. You have to figure out how to write that visually. So that's been the main challenge. And then the other part is we're back to sequencing. You know, how do you put those pieces together? Yes. Like you just said, you create the different pieces and then you can go back and and try to figure out where they go. A pilot has an even <laughs> worse are to me more challenging tasks because a good story visually is only good if it has conflict and and it's only really good if it has rising conflict. Whoever is the protagonist, whoever the main characters are, it's not very interesting if everything just kind of works out. It's not going to hold anybody's interest. And so how do you decide of all the things that could be happening, whether it's to kids and unaccompanied or to volunteers who are going out because somebody's been died or been killed or whatever, how do you figure out the arc of the story that includes rising increasing obstacles that have to be overcome. And in doing them, the character that you started out with is changing, changing emotionally, changing spiritually, 
they're not the same person they were at the beginning mm-hmm. any more than your story was the same. I don't know about you, but I, I had never done that. And it's been a wonderful learning opportunity because not only is the, the written format differently different, but just trying to figure out what is it that we respond to visually. If we go back to an company, we responded because the images were so vivid. How do you write a story and create characters that are vivid? Much less what you do with them, although plot is character and character is plot. I mean, but that's what I've been doing for the last upteen months. What I really want you to surface next is probably the most inappropriate question for a woman that I could ask. But you know the reason that I love this story, because there's a story behind the story behind the story here. And what I really want to talk about is what your mindset is around age. Huh, age. Mm-hmm. That's interesting you ask that. Interesting in two ways, because right in front of me is a book that I'm taking a class in the fall, and the prerequisite for taking this class, or what you must have, it's, a, it's a, an advanced screenwriting class, is Mindset mm-hmm. by Dr. Carol Dweck. And we did not plan this, you guys, I swear to God. But if you haven't read Mindset and you are interested in, and it fits right in with this. So age. Okay. So I have to say at the outset that Monica knows this, but whoever's <laughs> listening, I'm 80. I was became 80 in April, April 26th. I was born in 1940. But whether because of good genes or whatever, I can pretty much keep up with anybody in their 50s or 60s. Or anybody even younger. I'm slower physically and mentally, but I can do it, which is why I do non-contact boxing and Pilates and walk my dog every day and do all those other good things because staying healthy is a really big deal for me. But my, I would argue that that one of the advantages, the big advantage of age is all the experiences you've had. I can't imagine trying to write a screenplay or even a novel as a 23-year-old. I just can't. The stories I want to tell draw so heavily on my own experiences as a human being you know, all the ups and downs and challenges and everything that happens to us. And so I think there's a tremendous advantage in being older. I don't think you automatically get wiser (laughs) because you get older, because I know some really stupid people (laughs) who are old. It's not stupid, just deliberately ignorant. Yeah, deliberately ignorant. That's what mindset is all about. The closed mind versus the open mind, you know, how how open are you to having new information come in, to, to taking risks, to putting yourself on the line? And I, I think that's I think that gets easier as you get older. And I think that wisdom, it's it's really interesting because I was actually writing about this earlier today and yesterday because today was a continuation. I try to sit down and write for at least 30 minutes every day. And one of the things that I was talking about was actually how wisdom happens. And what actually came up for me that I'm kind of inquiring about is concept that I often talk about, which I think I've shared with you, which I call divine trauma. This idea of, you know, not that it's about being grateful for going through trauma, but it's about those places, I think, where we get broken and have to face hardship and deep, deep emotions, and maybe sometimes our worst fears, and at some point kind of come through that on the other side and are able to see through another perspective. I often find it so interesting that the goddess Athena is the goddess of wisdom and her kind of her 
patron animal or her token animal is the owl who can cleave through the darkness. It's just, it's this idea of like, wow, like how does one, how does one get to this place of wisdom? And one thing I hear you saying is yes to life experience. But the other I think is really around people who have grown emotionally resilient or who have an emotional intelligence or who have allowed themselves to be with very difficult emotions or circumstances. And when I think about you, Linda, and I think about just all of the ways that you really don't shy away from experiences that are very confronting, very hard to look at. It's this idea of you do not look away. I love that about you. And I love, and I'm saying this for my listeners and for you, Linda, but you know, I adore you. I did not, I was not uh, working with, I mean, I really worked with you for a year before I knew your age because, and and it's not that it matters, but it matters to me in that what I love to highlight about you is the fact that it's, that you just continue to live your fullest life. And to me, that is the most inspiring. Your age never really comes up for you. I mean, I'm sure it does, but you know what I mean. I kind of joke that like walking beside you in New York City, like I was having to like take a break. <laughs> you, know, you, you bring up some, you, you use some interesting adjectives, and, and one of them is my my favorite, and and that's resilience. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I've always been fascinated by by the whole idea of resilience, and we could go all kinds of places with it. Let me step back for what you're saying in the first place. Number one, I think I think everybody goes through tough times. I don't know anybody in that I've ever met that didn't. But one of the things that I think makes a huge difference in in how we deal with those bad things is how resilient we are. And I don't know how it is one person in a family turns out to be really resilient and, and the other one doesn't. All I know is that I think I got an extra dose of it. Mm-hmm. And along with that, I think I got double dose of curiosity, curious about everything and love learning about almost anything you can name. The third thing is, oh, by the way, there's another book that you should be aware of, which just ties right into this. And it's a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. And her whole thesis is that grit is defined, as she defines it, as passion versus passion plus perseverance, getting interested in something, getting so taken with it that you can't put it down. That combination of curiosity and passion and perseverance means that you can do anything and gives you the opportunity to not only think about projects, because I think one of the things I've I've discovered is, and you and I talked about this, that it's one thing to think about something and turn it over in your head and do that for God knows how long weeks, months, whatever, but it's only until you walk to the edge and actually jump off (laughs) and take the risk that you're actually going to do something with it that anything happens. And my experience is, and we're going back to unaccompanied, is that that is soon, using that as an example, as soon as I did that, as soon as I said, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call and I'm going to take this young woman out to lunch, it's like everything I needed started flowing in. Everything I needed. Mm-hmm. The whole idea that there was a story there, the whole idea of this is where you start and, and you fumble and you go down that rabbit hole. But, but always having, for me, what felt like a sense of responsibility that no, this needs to be done. And whether we're talking about stories or we're talking about 
project, whatever it is, I think it's a great gift to be able to get passionate about something. I don't know of anything more thrilling than than kind of that chase, the challenges and everything that come up. It's like writing screenplays when you don't have a clue how to write a screenplay and then actually doing it successfully. It really doesn't deter you to start something new that you know nothing about. It's kind of like... I think a lot of people like that, though. I, I, we don't hear about them because I don't think we do really dramatic things. But I think if you look around... Like I was going through your list of uh, or looking at your podcast, and I mean, I, pretty much everybody you've you've had on have these qualities. That quality of resilience. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. And so, so I don't think it's that rare. But I think in most cases, you know, people like me work behind the scenes until we do something that gets a lot of attention. Then we go back behind the scenes and we, you know, we scuffle and do everything for months and months, and then we come out with something else, and then we drop back, you know, and so. That's a, that's a huge gift, and so being eighty, it, you know, my biggest thing is can I can I live long enough to do more of these things and figure out what else I'm curious about, whether it's you know non-contact boxing or writing screenplays or you know whatever it is, because ah. Oh, you know, life is really short. You know, I'm, I'm losing one of my best friends right now. Somebody much younger than me, 20 years younger at least, mm. who is such an amazing woman. And it, it kills me because how did I get so lucky? I'm serious. How did I get so lucky? I'm 20 years older than her. It should be me. It should be me dying. She's been such a light, not just to me, but to so many people in her life. And it's that kind of thing, which has its own, to me, it sounds really kind of whatever, but I think there's a responsibility. Here we go. We go back to that that term of responsibility or guilt if you don't do it. That one of the responsibilities of growing older is is to make use of that time. Make use of that time. Yeah. This is not a time to sit on the couch. This is a time to say, oh my God, I still have all my wits, or at least most of them. I still have a healthy body and I can do everything I can every day to keep it healthy. And oh my God, of all the things that are out there, what's what's the one or two or three things that go, do me, do me. And there's always something out there. There's usually more than a few things. And how do you make the decision that no, it's that one. Nobody's paying attention to that one. That's the one I want to do. There's plenty of people who will take care of the other ones, but that one's just sitting there. And you and I also talked about in New York how that piece happens. And it was Elizabeth Gilbert talk interview about that, where she's talking to Ann Platchett about, you know, the fact that they both agree, you know, that there are stories out there kind of floating in the ether, looking for people to tell them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in her case, you know, the story dropped down and tapped her on and, and she started writing it and then she put it away. And a year later when she met Ed Paget, and she described what that story was in detail and, and, and that's the fact that she put it away and I hope they'll both forgive me for my bad paraphrasing. And then Ann Paget laughed and said, oh, that's the story I'm writing. Yes. <laughs> it gave, basically, it gave up on you and, and and dropped in on me and said, are you interested in telling this story? And I don't know if, you know, these stories are out there plopping down on anybody else. But but when they do, I figure I don't feel like I can let them go. And, and the third one is already percolating. And I'm sitting here on the third one going, I have no clue how to tell that story, but nobody's telling that one either. And so I guess there's probably not just three, four, five. I think there's probably an unlimited number. And my goal is is not to waste time. Like right now, it means so much to me to have finished, you know, that second screenplay instead of wasting 
this time during the pandemic because it's been really hard, I think, for all of us. How do you focus when all you can think of or a major part of your day is worrying about whether you or people you love are going to be safe or if you don't have a job, how are you going to pay your all the things? How do you gather yourself enough to continue to write? How do you presence yourself? Uh, back to yeah. back to kind of that that gift of presence or presencing. And the other thing that I love what you said about kind of this idea of right now. It's never mind yesterday or you know five minutes ago. Like right now is can be and is a sacred moment to get started with whatever it is that you want to do that calls you forth that you feel passionate about. And I loved that definition of grit, uh, that passion and perseverance. And just really, I think giving ourselves permission to go for it. I'm really curious. I I don't have the answer. How do we get that way? That's what intrigues me. And uh, Angela Duckworth talks about that. And certainly Carol Dweck does a little bit, but nobody really has come up with what is it that, why do we get this gift? Why, how did that happen? How did that happen? And then the second question, of course, I have I have a friend, a very wise friend who said, Linda, you're always asking why, and that's the least important question. And she's right. Can you just can you just let something be and act on it and whatever and stop asking why? And I <laughs> the answer is no. I love her because she she really she really calls me on all my shit. So funny. So, but I would, I am, that's one of the things I'm really curious at because I have, for example, I have two sons and, and one of my sons was born with a, a very rare syndrome called Mobius syndrome. And that kid who has to endure, if you have that syndrome in David's case, like his face is paralyzed, so he can't smile and his eyes don't converge. And so when you look at David, what a lot of people do, they assume because his face is blank that he's, he's retarded. And he, even though he's now 50, He'll say, Mom, every day I, you know, I, I have to deal with somebody treating me or saying something to me. And, and so he is the most resilient person I have ever met in my life. And that doesn't mean my other son isn't. But David faces that down every day. He's like that, the bobble toy. I remember, or I think they still have him where you hit it and it always comes back up. That's David. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Because other people with less of a challenge fold. <laughs> You know, they fold at the first obstacle. So he's a great teacher. But if you said to David, how did you get that way? Well, mom, I just came this way. Well, mm-hmm. how did you just come that way? And the guy sitting next to you, who's a bully and teasing you, how did he, how come he didn't get that? That's what's fascinating to me. Just endlessly fascinating. Something, you know, I'm interested enough that I try, I think, for my characters, you know, when I'm creating characters, I I love resilient characters who don't have a clue in the beginning and think they, maybe it's not that they don't think they can do it, but they're, they're put in positions that they didn't plan on and they weren't warned about. Welcome to my life. Yeah. Welcome to your life. Welcome to our life. Somehow. Yeah. And so I'm curious about that. And if anybody, if anybody has the answer to that, I would really like to hear it. I, I don't think anybody's done any brain scans for resilience. They've done it for almost everything else. But I, I'm, I'm convinced that if, if you have even the remotest dose of resilience, you can do almost anything. And not just because you're faced with obstacles and challenges, but you can make a decision. Because I think largely it is mindset. I'm really convinced. I'm really convinced that a large part of how we 
operate and function in this world has to do with with just mindset. Are you open? Are you willing to take a risk? Or is it just too scary? I don't know how you get two different people, two people raised in the same family that come out exactly different ends of the spectrum. You know, one person is like, whatever. And the other person is don't, please don't make me do that. Please, please. I can't do that. And, and it sounds like I'm being really judgmental and I don't mean to be, I'm simply saying in my experience, I, it's just, and, and it, it's funny because it comes up on trauma calls. What, what does the whole, you know, in, in your worst times when you're in shock, when you're in shock and after, you know, it, when we're on a trauma call, everybody is in shock, But you can tell very, very quickly how people are going to come out the other end. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. even the worst of situations. I mean, can you imagine being a mom whose 16-year-old son has just blown his head off with his father's service pistol? I just actually listened to such a helpful podcast that Brene Brown did on, I think it was on anxiety. And what she talked about was over-functioners and under-functioners when it comes to crisis. Yeah. And that's that's what's coming up for me as you're as you're talking about that. But resilience, I think, you know, I'm I'm going to get curious after this uh podcast episode and look into that because I would love to see the other person I love is and I'm going to butcher his name, but is it Tegebum? Uh, I can't pronounce his name. He's he's doing a movie on trauma and I, I can't pronounce his name, but I think it's G A B E. I just posted about it today, darn it. I can't I can't think of his name. Mate M A T E. And so what is he what is he talking about? He's talking about trauma and what why people get addicted uh, to substances and what it is. I think the movie is called The Wisdom of Trauma. That's what that's what it is. Hmm, that's an interesting name. Uh, yeah, the wisdom of trauma. Hold on, I'm looking it up right quick. It is, and of course, it doesn't have his name. Doctor Gabor Mate. I'm not. I'm not familiar with him. Or Doctor Gabor Mate. I don't know how he pronounces it, but yeah. So it's. It looks super interesting, and I think he actually talks a little bit about resilience. But that's going to be a good one coming out. Well, if you find anything on resilience that you you really like, let me know because I. I haven't. It, it's like a chapter in somebody's book, or maybe it's a footnote or something. And uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there are people, and maybe Angela Duckworth is, you know, who wrote Grit is, is one place to start because she certainly, you know, the whole idea, I, I love the one story. And if you're asking, you're not asking, but you'll get this one. So when she was early in her career, she was, she was doing research at West Point and West Point, like all the military academies does, puts a lot of effort in trying to figure out and select uh, young people who are going to be able to make it through, you know, West Point, the Air Force Academy and Naval Academy. And yet every year, Every year, at least 30% drop out. And you go, wait a minute. These are kids who have the whole last two years of high school. They have, they have done everything they need to do to get in. You know, they're wonderful scholars. They're great athletes. They're leaders and everything else. And yet they get to the academies and they leave. And so her question, which was the beginning of one of her beginning experiences for writing the book Grit about passion and perseverance was to take the same material or look at it in a different way. And instead of looking at their accomplishments and, and those kinds of measures was to look at other ways of determining, in essence, you know, did they have grit? Mm-hmm. Did they have not just passion, but perseverance? Could they hang in there when, how likely was it that they would hang in there 
when the going got really tough. Mm-hmm. And you go, huh, that makes, that sounds really familiar. And I think that's why I loved her book because it, that was as close as I've ever gotten to the, the whole idea of resilience. That idea that you really care about something and no matter what you hang in there. And that doesn't mean you don't fail and have to pick yourself up and all these things. But And it sounds like, you know, we go back to how we started, which was there's a story nobody else is telling, Linda. So there you go. That's your next project. I can you see it now. Resilience, a documentary by Linda Friedman. Oh, I can't do documentaries anymore. I, didn't, <laughs> I don't have the resources. I, I, I've, I've switched to fiction where I get to, instead of having to go now, out and look. Right. Now you, now you can just do like live in your imagination. That is just so great. So, yes. so here's what I want to say just to, you know, wrap up. I want to, first of all, thank you so, so much for just being with us today for talking about all these amazing Things And I want to really, you know, acknowledge not only what you shared with us about unaccompanied children, but I want to encourage everybody who's listening to check out unaccompaniedchildren.com because you can see, of course, the short film and we'll put it in the blog post. But correction, all- correction, correction, correction. Oh, it's what? Unaccompanedchildren.org. Okay. Yes, unaccompanedchildren.org. And also just this idea, several of the ideas that we've been talking about throughout our episode, grit, wisdom, tip, being present with someone. I know you and I love talking about that, Linda, and what that means. Resilience, resilience. (laughs) Yeah, resilience. And just want to wish you congratulations on finishing your series and your next screenplay. I think this is going to be so exciting. I cannot wait to see what comes out. Thank you. And so we'll we'll make sure that we do another episode because I would love to come back around and actually have another episode on what's happening with that as you, you know, launch that out in the world, because I have no doubt that great things will come of it. Oh, I love your confidence. Thank you. <laughs> and you, you know, I, I, I number one, I, I enjoy talking with you, Monica. I've told people that when you and I finally met for the first time in New York City, I think we spent almost the whole night just talking because we had never met. We had simply been doing everything remote. So it's it's wonderful to have this opportunity to do to continue our remote conversation and, and friendship. Uh, you know how much I treasure you. Like unaccompanied would not have gotten out there would not have gotten out there without your expertise and your confidence that it could be done. That's That was a big part of that. I did the film, but you made sure that it got out there and uh, forever grateful, as are a lot of other people who who really benefited by, by that little film getting done. So Aww. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. And, uh, you know, like you, I think that there was a lot of divine choreography there. So I really, I believe so much in in all of that. And I also love thinking about that team. And of course, this past July, when I started seeing the unaccompanied film come back around again, and then a new round of donations, I was just like, yes, every year, it feels like it continues to make the rounds. So it's been so exciting to continue to watch it flourish and thrive. And I know that that film is making an impact still on so many people in the world and that children and families are being served because of that film. So thank you again. And I adore you and more to be revealed. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.